during a congressional hearing on UFO sightings this week. How's that for a start of a sermon? (laughs) Pentagon officials told lawmakers that extraterrestrial life is not the cause of what the government refers to as unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. Instead, members of the House Intelligence Subcommittee on Counterterrorism and Counterintelligence learned that UFO sightings fall into five categories. These are not my five points. You don't have to write these down. Airborne clutter, natural atmospheric phenomenon, U.S. government or industry developmental programs, number four, foreign adversary systems, or number five, the one that's kind of funny to me, unexplained sightings that merit further investigation, okay, which is what I thought they were in the first place. This UFO hearing on Capitol Hill, it comes in the wake of a Wall Street Journal article, some of you may have read it, with this headline, quote, these scientists want to send space aliens a cosmic roadmap to Earth. What could go wrong, right? A group of international scientists plans to beam details about human civilization, including Earth's location in space, to a region of our galaxy that might contain potentially habitable exoplanets. Kids, if you don't know what exoplanets are, Google it with your parents when you get home. All of this, why would they do that? All of this in hopes of leaving a kind of, quote, cosmic message in a bottle for aliens to find and learn about humanity and our life on earth. Again, maybe you're asking why would astrophysicists want to do that? Well, I'm glad you're thinking that. According to Dr. Stuart Taylor, an astrophysicist for the SETI Institute, Search for Extraterrestrial Life in California, he said this, quote, this is important, Sending the message could benefit humanity by putting us in touch with peaceful aliens whose scientific technological knowledge surpasses our own. Here's the line, quote, E.T. might be able to help us revive a world we have almost destroyed. How desperate is humanity for wisdom from above, for guidance, for direction, that we would send a message deep into outer space, hoping that we hear back a helpful word from the heavens that would help save this world? What if the one who made the heavens the one who fashioned the sun, moon, and stars, not only speaks through the heavens, but has also already sent a clear, sufficient, and saving word from heaven to earth for all humanity to read. What would that message be? And how must we respond to it? If you have your Bibles, open up We'll find the answers to these questions and more in Psalm 19. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can use the Bible in the pew in front of you. You can take that Bible if you don't have a copy of God's Word. That would be a, a gift from us to you. 
You can find Psalm 19 on page 456. And as you're turning there, this is a beloved psalm. This is uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, who know a thing or two about poetry. He said, quote, this Psalm 19 is the greatest poem in the book of Psalms and the greatest lyric in all the world. And it's easy to see why. Let's listen now to Psalm 19. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let me summarize Psalm 19 in a sentence. This is the point of the passage. In Psalm 19, David, King David, you see that from the superscription, he celebrates the wonder of God's glorious revelation in nature, verses 1 to 6, and in Scripture, verses 7 to 14. David celebrates the glorious revelation of God in nature, in what he's made in verses one to six, but then even more so in scripture, verses seven to 14. God has revealed himself in two ways, through his world and through his word. He has revealed himself and his glory generally in nature and especially in scripture. 
He's revealed himself visually in the things he has made in the heavens and the earth and verbally in the pages of Holy Scripture. And David celebrates this. He glories in this. It's amazing that God in his mercy would not only display his glory in the heavens, but he would reveal himself. He would condescend to speak to us in a book. And so my aim is David's aim. David is celebrating God's glorious revelation in nature and in scripture. That's my prayer for us this morning. My prayer is that literally, don't look at me, look at verse 14. My prayer is verse 14, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in God's sight, our rock and our redeemer. That's my prayer. So this psalm, it breaks into two pieces. Number one, God's glorious revelation in nature. That's verses one to six. God's glorious revelation in nature. Verses one to six. And then number two, God's perfect revelation in scripture. Verses seven to 14. God's perfect revelation in scripture. So let's take that first one. God's glorious revelation in nature. Nature, beginning in verse one, David begins in Psalm 19 by celebrating God's glorious revelation in nature, specifically displayed in the heavens above. That is in in, in the, the sun, the moon and the stars in the sky. Look at verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. David celebrates the way that the heavens communicate God's glory. David was a king. He was not an astronomer. But in the heavens above, David sees something. David sees the sun, the moon, the stars, all the starry host. He sees all of them as declaring, as telling, as proclaiming, as preaching something. Namely, That God is glorious, that the creator is glorious. Notice there how in verse one, the glory of God is in parallel with the phrase his handiwork. Do you see that? You know how Hebrew poetry works. It's parallel. Those phrases that coincide line by line, they're they're intended to explain and expound each other. In other words, David sees in creation, in the heavens, the glorious handiwork of God, the God who spoke everything into being in the first place. Psalm 33, six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all the starry host. Now, this divine revelation in nature, in in what God has made, it's not just glorious. It's not just glorious, but number two, it's also continuous Look at verse look at verse two. It's continuous day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, some of you think my sermons are too long, but I have exegetical support, right? God's sermon never stops, right? His sermon in the skies is much longer than my sermon. You notice those two phrases day to day and night to night. What is that? What is he saying? It never stops. Day, night, in in the heavens, you look up, you see the sun during the day, you see the stars at night. Every moment of every day and every night, 
The heavens are preaching, as it were, a continuous sermon that God is glorious. It's not just glorious. It's not just continuous. Here's a third word. And I struggled. I had to use the thesaurus for this one. It's ubiquitous. (laughs) Now, what does ubiquitous mean? Anybody know what it means? Ubiquitous means every place. It means that it's, it's everywhere. It's omnipresent. Every place. Notice, it's not just all the time. It's in every place and everywhere. Look at verse four. Where does their voice go out? Their voice goes out, notice, through all the earth and their words to the what? End of the world. So in other words, the revelation of God as creator in his creation is everywhere you go. We had some friends that just went to the Grand Canyon and they came back and I asked them, I said, I've heard it's a big hole in the ground. Is that true? And they said, yes, it's a really big hole in the ground, but it's glorious. It's amazing. It's the best hole in the ground I've ever seen. They just kept going on about the Grand Canyon, right? And so kids, listen, remember that story, the prophet Jonah, he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what did he, you know, God said, go preach. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to head to Tarshish. And so he gets on a boat. That's a bad idea because God's not only the God of earth, he's the God of the seas, right? So he flees on a boat, but eventually Jonah ends up where God wants him to. You can't flee from the presence of the Lord because God's everywhere. In the same way, kids, you can't go anywhere in heaven or on earth where God's glory isn't being proclaimed in what he's made. John Calvin, in one of his commentaries, he says, the glory of God is richly engraved in large letters in creation, which all may read with the greatest of ease. So, friend, you could use a microscope and examine God's creation on a subatomic level, or you can behold breathtaking pictures from the Hubble uh, Space Telescope of a galaxy that is 13 billion light years from Earth. And I did the math. That's 78 sextillion miles. Don't ask me how many zeros. There's a lot of zeros. And guess what? Whether you're looking through a telescope or a microscope, you will see something that reveals God's glory. But even more than this, what's the point of all this? David says in a previous psalm, Psalm 8, verse 1, that the glory we see in creation at the Grand Canyon, in the Hubble Space Telescope, on a subatomic level, the glory you behold is just a faint echo of the glory of God. David says, Psalm 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name where? In all the earth. Next line, you have set your glory above the heavens. His glory is even greater than anything you can see in his creation. It's a pointer. It's like a sign pointing you to say, we did not make ourselves. Someone made us who's far more impressive, far more glorious than anything that you can behold in his world. David says God's glory in or his revelation in nature, it's glorious, it's continuous, it's ubiquitous. That means it's everywhere, but it's also shockingly wordless. It's wordless. 
That is, it's visual. It's not verbal. Look at verse three. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. What's David getting at? David is using in verses one to six, all these, lang- all these words that talk about speech, declaring, proclaiming. But David is very well aware that when you go outside at the night sky and you see the stars, you're not hearing anything. The, 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 the heavens aren't audibly talking to you. If they are, meet me after the service. I'll be at that back door. We need to talk, right? But they're talking. They're, they're, they're preaching, but they're not using words. They're visual words. In other words, it's a wordless sermon. It, it's inaudible. It's visible. You can see it. It's plain as day, but you can't hear it. And yet it's preaching all the time. You can't hear it with your ears. You can only hear it with your eyes. Interesting. So when you gaze at the star-filled night sky and you behold a dazzling sunset or you feel the warmth of a warm, blazing sunrise at dawn, the heavens are preaching a visible yet inaudible sermon to you that has one point, namely God is glorious. Now, from our vantage point, there's nothing in the heavens that's more impressive than the sun. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but you can see in verses four to six in them, that is the heavens. God has set a tent for the sun, which comes out. And I just love the poetry. David just is an incredible poet. He uses the image of a bridegroom at a wedding and he uses the image of an athlete like a bridegroom leaving his chamber to go out to meet his bride and like a strong man, like an athlete who's running his race or his course with joy. You see the, the, the sun come up and it goes to the sky and then it sets on the other side. And he says that sun, it's like, it's like a bridegroom going to meet his bride. And it's like an athlete running a race. And he says there's nothing hidden from its heat. It goes from the one end to the, to the end. And you might be thinking, why is David talking about the sun here? Well, why does, why does he go in this order? And brother and sisters, let me just tell you, as much as you study God's word, there's more to discover. And I wonder, as we read through those first six verses, why is David going in the pattern that he's going in? Here's the answer. David's looking at Genesis 1. You don't believe me. I can see some doubts in your eyes. David begins in verse one with what God made in Genesis one, one, the heavens and the earth. Then in verse two, he he goes on to talk about what God made in verses one or three to five of Genesis one, where God created light and separated light from the darkness and named the light day and the darkest night. And then in verses four to six, what does David do? He moves on to what God made in verses 14 to 16 of Genesis one, the sun. So let me summarize. David is celebrating the divine revelation of God in nature. And he puts it like this. There's a voiceless, visual, continual, universal, available knowledge in nature. And behind all this knowledge is a glorious God who's the creator of the whole world. This is what theologians call general revelation. Now, Everything is telling us something about the God who made us. But the problem is this. If this is available to everyone, 
If it's clear and it's everywhere and it's all the time, why don't people believe then? Why are there people who don't believe? If this is all there, if God has gloriously revealed himself as creator in his creation, why don't creatures believe? Why don't we give thanks to him? Well, Paul mentions this in Romans chapter one. Listen to what he says. Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth? You think, well, how, how are they suppressing the truth, Paul? Verse, next verse, four, he's going to explain. What can be known about God is plain to them. It's plain. Where is it plain? Well, or why is it plain? Because God has shown it to them. Where has he shown it to them? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. Then he draws an inference. So they're without excuse. Friends, we don't have a truth problem. As sinners who are fallen, we have a truth suppression problem. What's clear as day is that the heavens and the earth haven't always existed. They've had a beginning and someone eternally powerful and eternal outside of time made them. It's clear, but we don't want to believe that. So what do we do? We suppress the truth. And notice that phrase, by or in our unrighteousness. If you're ever talking to someone who's an atheist, who doesn't believe the Christian faith, there may be intellectual reasons why, but it's very clear from places like Romans 1. At the end of the day, unbelief is not fundamentally an intellectual problem. It's moral rebellion. We suppress the truth. Why? In our unrighteousness. We don't want there to be a God above us and a creator to tell us what to do and what we can't do. So we, we suppress the truth and we make idols out of whatever we want to. It's not a truth problem. It's a suppression problem. And so... What are we supposed to make of this? Well, well, this is how Christians have thought about this in the past. You have to write this down. This is from the Belgic Confession, 1561. I know, I know we have some Belgic Confession fans in here. Here we go. Article two says this. This is what Christians have believed. Quote, the universe, this is beautiful. The universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. God's eternal power and divinity. That's Romans 1.20. All these things are enough to convict humans and to leave them without excuse. Here's the point. 
General revelation is enough to demonstrate that God is, that he's eternal, that he's almighty. But the skies will not tell you his name. The skies won't tell you the knowledge of the redeemer. They'll only tell you the knowledge of a creator. And if the psalm ended in verse six, we would be in a world of hurt. Because if you know that God exists, you know that he's big, you know that he's eternal, and you know that you've sinned against him. How are you going to be made right with him? We need more than just general revelation. We need special revelation. We need a word from God. And in God's mercy, he's given us such a word. And that's what David turns to in verses 7 to 14. God's perfect revelation in Scripture. Isaac Watts, the great hymn writer, put it this way. The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, in every star thy wisdom shines. But when we behold thy word, we read thy name in fair lines. And so what, is, what does David do? He turns from God's revelation in nature and he turns to God's perfect revelation in Scripture. Look at verses 7 to 9. David reminds us of the perfection of the Word of God, the Scriptures. And just in three verses, if you want three verses to memorize about God's Word, this would be a good three verses to memorize. Look again at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. I don't want you to just look at those verses, okay? First, whose word is this? Six times David says it's the Lord's word. Do you see that? It's the Lord six times. It's the Lord's precepts. It's the Lord's law. This is God's word. This is the covenant keeping God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is the God who rescues his people in the Exodus. He's the God who makes promises and he's the God who keeps them. He's the God who cannot lie. It's the Lord's word. Now be amazed. Friend. Let's just not move on from this. Be amazed that the one whose name is holy, the one who inhabits eternity, has revealed himself in his word. Second, did you notice what scripture is? Again, look at it again. What is scripture? Six nouns. Do you see the six nouns? Scripture is law or Torah. That is, it's God's instruction. Scripture is the Lord's testimony. When you go to, I mean, I think Marcus just went to be a witness or not a witness, but he was, he was called to be on a jury. And in a jury trial, you have witnesses, right? Someone who's bearing witness about what happened in different events. Well, who's bearing witness in scripture? It's the Lord's testimony. This is a trustworthy witness. Scripture is called by David precepts. Do you see that? Precepts, commandments, and rules. Those are all synonymous. These are not, these are not opinions, They're marching orders from the king. They are his commands. They are his divine rules. They're to govern our lives. Scripture is also referred to by David as the fear of the Lord. 
In other words, these commands, these teachings are to help cultivate a reverent fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, that we would revere him, that we would fear him and no one else. Third, so we know whose word it is. We know what the word is. Notice, what is scripture like? Look at the six adjectives. Look at the six adjectives. What is scripture like? It's perfect, David says. It's utterly sound. That is, it's wholesome. It's faultless. Scripture is, according to David, sure. Do you see that? It's trustworthy. It's a sure word. It's right. It's altogether righteous, David says. It's pure. That is, it's radiant. It's clean. It's true. You see that? It's the truth and it's utterly reliable in every way. To be a member of this church, you have to affirm our church's statement of faith, which was written in the 1800s. And it comes from earlier statements of faith that go all the way back to the 1600s. And this is what we believe as a church about God's word. It's a good summary. Here it is. We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect, there's that word, treasure of heavenly instruction. That it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. That's what scripture is like. That's the qualities of scripture. But there's more. Look what David says. What does scripture do? What does scripture do? Look at the verbs that that he uses. These are participles. Kids, participles are those verbs. They're like ing words that help get the, the main verb done. Look what he says. Being perfect, scripture revives the soul. Being trustworthy, scripture makes the simple wise. Being right, scripture makes the heart rejoice. Being pure, scripture enlightens the eyes. Being clean, scripture endures forever. So let me just pause and ask, Christian, are you tired this morning? Do you need to be revived? Where do you go? You go to scripture. Young children, you want to be wise? What can make you wise? Scripture. You want, you want to find reasons this morning to rejoice? Let's say you're downcast this morning. You want some reasons to rejoice? Where do you go? Scripture can rejoice your heart. You want to finish and not make bankrupt of your faith? Where do you go to find reasons and motivations to persevere? You go to scripture. Brothers and sisters, open this book. That's what scripture does. Let me just ask you this question. I have a friend of mine who just relocated from Central Asia because they got kicked out and then to Burma, Myanmar, and they got kicked out and they're finishing up Bible translation of the New Testament down in North Carolina. And it's going to be for a people group that doesn't have the Bible. Can you imagine not having a Bible that you could read? Let me ask you this this morning. Where would you be this morning if you didn't have God's word? You wouldn't be here. I would be here. 
So how should we respond? David doesn't just want us to marvel at God's word. He wants us to put this word into practice. So I want to give a few brief applications for us individually and think through how we can submit to this as a church. It's sufficient. It's a sufficient word. And you even notice in verses 10 to 14, the way the psalm ends, David, as it were, reflecting on God's glory and creation and then his perfection revealed in his word. He puts that word into practice in these closing verses. So here's three applications there from those closing verses. Number one, how how do you put this sufficient word into practice in your life? Number one, prize God's word. Prize God's word. Why? Because it's precious and because it's pleasant. Verse 10, more to be desired than they than gold, even much fine gold. Stop. It's precious. If I were to put gold bars on the floor or a copy of the Bible, you should walk past the gold bars, right? That's what David is saying. You can get more gold. This is the only word, right? This is the only word from the heavens. If you have to choose between gold, right, or word, you choose word. I always tell my kids in the morning, no Bible, no breakfast. <laughs> I, I, I give them food, right? But if you have to choose between skipping a meal and getting time in the word, you don't live on bread alone. (laughs) You live on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now feed your kids. Don't 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 take the wrong application. (laughs) But it's not just precious. It's pleasant. David says it's like honey, even drippings of the honeycomb. What you're holding in your hands is a perfect word. It's the most valuable thing this world affords. It's wisdom. It's the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God Almighty. Prize it. Read it. Listen to it. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Believe it. And obey it. That brings to number two. Obey God's word. We not only prize God's word because it's precious and pleasant, we obey God's word because it warns and it rewards. Verse 11, moreover, by them that is by the word is your servant. Notice this word warned. You see that? Now, young parents, one of the ways that you love your children is by giving them warnings. If you never warn your kids, you don't love your kids. (laughs) If they're running out in the street and you're like, oh, they'll they'll figure it out. No, you warn them. You warn them because you love them, right? God loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than you can imagine. And so guess what? In his word, he gives you warnings. He warns you. But he didn't just warn us. He rewards us. When we obey him, it will go well for you by obeying God's word. Does not mean you won't have trials. Doesn't mean you you won't have any difficulties. But God who made the world has said, obey my word and it will go well for you. Even in your trials. He says he warns us, but he says, look at that last phrase. Some of you don't believe me. Look at verse 11 In keeping them. There is what? Great reward. I love Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to what? Please God. 
For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must what? Believe that he is and he's a rewarder for those who seek him. So when you, when you read your Bibles every day, you should be looking for reward. Not because I, I did my part, now God has to reward me. You should look for the blessing of God every time you open the Bible. What can I believe? What can I trust that will help me know the pleasure of the God who made me? Prize God's word because it's precious and pleasant. Obey God's word because it warns and rewards. Number three, Pray God's word, pray God's word, because it exposes and it energizes. That's verses 12 to 14. One of the best primary ways that God has provided you, Christian, to grow in holiness is by learning to turn these words into your own words in prayer. If you don't know what to pray, open the Psalms. If you don't know what to pray, Take God's word, Christian, and plead God's own handwriting back to him. He tells us in 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he what? Hears us. Do you want to pray according to his will? Pray God's word. That's what David does. He takes He takes these words that he's just reflected on and he turns them into prayer. Verse 12, declare me innocent of hidden faults. The word, it it, it, it exposes our sin. It exposes our hidden faults. And so he prays, declare me innocent, Lord. Keep me back from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Isn't that wonderful? Take those and pray those. Verse 14, it's a closing prayer. I love that. After reflecting on God's word, what does he do? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing or acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He wants to be a man of God's word so that he might bring pleasure and know the pleasure of the Lord. Let me close with one more application that's more corporate and then we'll be done. One of the primary ways that we can pray and encourage each other during this season of transition is by trusting in God's word and not man. The power is not in the preacher. The power is in the word. It's not in the preacher. It's in the word. It's in the book. God's perfect book. Scripture revives the soul. Scripture makes the simple wise. Scripture makes the heart rejoice. Scripture enlightens the eyes. Scripture endures forever. God saves his people and sanctifies his people and sustains his people all the way to glory by his spirit through the word. Now, perhaps it's just human nature to put an emphasis in every field of study, a high esteem on, on age and on experience. And I imagine in many roles, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a huge thing that you need. But even in pastoral ministry, there, there's nothing wrong with emphasizing age or experience. But sometimes Christians who are wanting an older pastor with more experience 
the, the lingering question in the back of our minds might be this. It might be this. What can he say to me? What can a younger pastor say to me? Now, some of you, maybe that's never crossed your mind. But some of you, maybe that's a serious question. What can he say to me? He doesn't have the experiences I do. He's not married or he doesn't have a family. He didn't have children. What could he possibly say to me? And I think King David would like to tell us that he, he can say anything that's in this book. He can say anything between Genesis and Revelation to you. He can give you the book. And that's all you need. I remember when reading in, in the pastoral epistles, remember Paul who discipled Timothy and he was pastoring the church at Ephesus, a church that Paul planted. And he says to Timothy, until I come, what do you tell him to do? Until I come. Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading or teaching of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. First Timothy 4.13. And remember what he told Timothy right before that? First Timothy 4.12. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're what? Young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. A young pastor like Timothy is commanded to set an example for the church and to give the church the book. Because that's where the power is. One more illustration. I love when the Apostle Paul was saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20. He had been preaching the gospel there for over three and a half years, we're told. Imagine having the Apostle Paul preaching all day long, every day for three and a half years. Pretty good, right? I mean, that's better than what you're getting right now. He had toiled in the scriptures He had labored as a servant of Christ to preach the whole counsel of God. He had proven himself not to be a peddler of God's word, but as a man of sincerity, as one commissioned by God who spoke in the sight of God in Christ. Paul preached the word in Ephesus in season and out of season. He refused to practice cunning and to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, He commended himself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's bodily presence was weak and his speech was unimpressive. But his weakness was a display for God's mighty grace. And when he preached the gospel, it's as as it were in his weakness. He had this gospel in a treasure in jars of clay so that surpassing power belongs to God and not to him. And after nearly four years of laboring in preaching the word to the Ephesians, he says, I'm never going to see your face again. And I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm probably going to die. Do you remember in Acts 20 what the apostle says? It's amazing. I mean, Think about the church at Ephesus. They're losing the apostle Paul. Who's going to fill his shoes? Timothy? Are you kidding me? 
Paul says in Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Isn't that beautiful? The apostle points away from himself, away from his experience, away from anything he's gone through. And he says, I'm pointing you to God. And I'm pointing you to the word of his grace, which is able, which has the power to build you up. Because the power is not in Paul. It's in the word. His word, his word of grace is mighty to save and mighty to sanctify. One last story and I'm done, I promise. When preachers say one last story, that means they're out of material. (laughs) I could go on and on. That's a cue that I have nothing left to say. But I do have something else. One last thing. On January 6th, I've told this story 10 times. I'll tell it 11 times. On January 6th, 1850, a young guy was walking in the snow in London. He was with his friend. Both of them were not Christians. But they heard that a famous preacher was in town and they wanted to hear him. So they get together, they go through the snow, the streets, and they go, they can't get to where they're going. The snow's too bad, they can't get there. And they're looking and they're like, well, what do we do? So they stop and they go off to this out of the way little chapel, a Methodist chapel in England or in in London. Well, they go to this service, there's not that many people there. And the guy who's up there about to preach isn't even the main preacher. He, uh, he's never preached before. He is someone who Spurgeon later says was a shoemaker or a tailor. He gets up to preach and the guy wasn't very good. (laughs) He didn't go to seminary. He basically did, according to the, the reports, he read one verse from Isaiah over and over again. He read this verse, Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. And this is what someone who was there that day said, quote, he didn't even pronounce the words right, but that didn't matter. The man said, my dear friends, this is a simple text. It says, look, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You could be the biggest fool and yet look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to yourselves, but it says, look to me. There's no use looking to yourself. You'll find no comfort in yourself. Jesus Christ says, look unto me, look unto me, look unto me. I am hanging on the cross for your sins. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at my Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look, look, look unto me. And by faith alone, apart from works, look to Jesus Christ. Look, you have nothing to do but look and live. That's not that bad of a sermon, right? And on that day, January 6, 1850, in this little out of the way chapel by an unknown, unnamed 
preacher he'd never preached before. Using one verse from God's word led to the conversion of that young man who was sitting there, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Years later, Spurgeon wrote this. I had been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Then and there, the darkness rolled away and I saw the sun ever since by faith. I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and it shall be till I die. Friends, the power is in the word because it's the word that reveals to us the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who came and suffered in our place for our sins, who rose again from the dead for our justification, who offers himself even this morning to anyone who would look to him and live. And so my prayer for us is that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in Him, our rock and our redeemer. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank You that by grace, through faith, we can look to the Savior and live. We thank You that You have not left us to come up with what we are supposed to do. But Lord, you've given us a word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Help us as a church to trust your word and to follow you by faith, not by sight. And we pray that you would sanctify us and build us up in the word of truth, that we might love you rightly and love our neighbors sacrificially, all for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.